forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and frequent toothbrusher. Oh, wow. Well, I'm so glad. Uh, hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and a voracious reader. Oh, are you now? Now I've started. Yeah, I started writing down every book that I'm finishing. Um, and then at the end of the year, hopefully I'll have like a complete list of uh, what I've read that past year. I know I started doing that a bit ago and it's so lovely because people always ask me what to recommend and I can never remember what the hell I've read. No, absolutely. And I'm and I've started reading. I like realized that I really like biographies uh, or autobiographies. And so I've started reading a lot of those. Uh, and I feel like I'm just I feel like I'm learning a lot. Yeah, I don't I don't like those. I know, I know you like fiction and I like like I like fiction, but I just have been more like I I read a biography of Tina Turner. I read a biography of Brian Epstein, who's was the Beatles manager. I just like, I don't know. I, I just want, I'm like, there's so many pop culture figures that we talk about or we like know about through osmosis or just through like pop culture. But I, but like, I was like, what what is their actual deal? I've learned, I've thought this, but now I've confirmed that my best way to learn things is listening really so like i have very limited interest in like i just like reading fiction Mm -hmm. and i have limited interest in what i will watch on tv but i will like listen like podcasts about so many different topics you don't care for documentaries like i never really want to watch documentaries but i like love learning through podcasts yeah. And I love when like people will tell me things like in, like <laughs> if someone's read something or is knowledgeable about a subject, I like love to learn about it yeah. through conversation or through a podcast. But I'm never drawn to read about it myself or to watch about it. That's so interesting. I, I like to read about it. I think like I've just been interested lately in the ways that women of the past have been presented and how incorrect that is, which I think there's probably a lot of really good podcasts about that topic. But I just am like, this Tina Turner book was like, brutal. And we make like so many, you know, people make jokes about it. But then like, when you actually read about things, it's like, holy shit, like that is so serious. But I think we've written off a lot of things that happened as like jokes or something. Like, I mean, I'm sure this is not new information, but like the ways we treated Monica Lewinsky, the whole book is just Ike beating the shit out of her, which is fucking like, why is that a thing that's like name checked in songs? Like, it's just really bizarre. And it, I think it mostly happens to, to female pop culture icons, people of the moment. And so like, it's been cool to, to read in their own words. That's the only thing like with the podcast, other than I know Bruce Springsteen and Obama have started their own podcast, but <laughs> often celebrities are not. How do we get on that podcast? <laughs> I also think something I'm realizing is like, I used to think so many horrible things happened a really long time ago. And it was so recent. So recent. I know. You know, like, the 50s were very recent. The 60s were very recent. Uh-huh. The 70s were very, re- you know, like yeah. all of these, you know, like leaps and bounds that we've taken since then, you know, like all of this stuff like happened during our parents' lifetime. Right. And so when we feel like society like slipping back, it's like, how could this be happening? But it's like, of course, of course it's happening. It's so, you know, we we barely got ourselves out of it. Yeah. Um, maybe it's just a factor of age because for us, for me and you, 20 years ago, we were 12, like we were people, you know, Mm -hmm. like we, we experienced things, but I don't think of that as like, to be like, that was 20 years ago is so hard for my brain to comprehend. Like, I'll be like, that happened yesterday. And now I realize that like for my parents, that's how they feel like about Mm -hmm. like to them. My mom, like I was a baby like yesterday to her. (laughs) And then like now I'm, you know, now I'm like a full grown person. Like that must be so jarring. I can't imagine how weird it is to have your baby become a person. 
It must be so strange. So strange. Really wild stuff. Anyway, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, <laughs> and brutal honesty. So yeah, I just think you should, everyone should keep in mind that a lot of stuff that seems far away was actually pretty recent and that it makes a lot of difference to go back and, and hear what those people had to say for themselves and also mm-hmm. to look to not just rely on pop culture zeitgeist, but to look into like what actually happened. And also... I'm sorry to my mom, who I guess probably thinks that I was a baby yesterday. The experience of having my nieces grow up, I obviously don't see them that often. It's like I forget that they were a baby. I'm having, you did? The, I'm having like the opposite thing where it's like I already am like forgetting that like just a few years ago, I like they were infants that I was like holding in my arms. You have a disconnect between that infant and this like full grown person. Totally. How do you not? You have to like keep moving with the times. <laughs> One of the funniest things was Mal has a baby uh, niece. And uh, when she was like six months or whatever, we were like, oh, my God, she's starting to walk or whatever. And Drew just goes. One day you'll get lunch with that person and she'll catch you up on her life. And we were like, oh, my God. I know. It's truly (laughs) wild. Yeah. Well, we've got a great episode for you guys this week. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we're going to be joined by Julia Tertian to talk about cooking and mental health and just her amazing books. Um, She's like a really great cookbook author. so. So stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough (laughs) questions. This week on the show, we have Julia Tertian. Julia is the best-selling author of Now and Again, Feed the Resistance, and Small Victories. And she has a new book out that we're going to talk about. Hi, Julia. Hi, how are you? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so first of all, (laughs) tell our audience, like, when people are like, what do you do? What do you say? I mean, depends who's asking. But for the most part, I just say I'm a cookbook author. That's usually the fastest, simplest. You kind of do so much more than that, right? Like, you do a lot of work on, like, people's relationship with food, right? And Mm. can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. I will take that description. I really like that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that is definitely something I do. And that stems from me working on my own relationship to food, which has been just in many ways, just amazing and wonderful and in many ways, really complicated. And I Mm -hmm. think that is probably the case for so many people. So yeah, I am not a therapist or (laughs) like a doctor or anything like that, but I am a cookbook author who is really very happy and grateful to bring my full self to my work and bring a lot of honesty to my work. So yeah, I'm honest about my relationship. I ask a lot of other people questions about theirs. And so I guess that's what I do. I don't know what you call that, but yeah, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) I think like there's a difference between someone who's just writing cookbooks and someone who's like thoughtfully including like social justice language Mm -hmm. or like, so can you talk about like how you started realizing that these things needed to be included in sort of like the the cooking world? Sure. Um, I don't know how much time you have. (laughs) I will try to keep this succinct. Just a little background. I've loved to cook since I was super tiny. Like my nickname when I was a kid was Julia the Child. Like I don't remember (laughs) like not being interested in cooking. It's all I've ever wanted to do. And I grew up basically like in a publishing house. Both my parents worked in the magazine business. So I grew up around people who were making like pages for a living. Neither of my parents are writers, but they're were super involved in like art direction, graphic design, editorial stuff and advertising too. So I knew that was a job and an option like to make printed matter. (laughs) So that is basically like what I've always wanted to do and what I've been able to do, which is just incredibly fortunate. And I would say for the first probably five to 10 years of my career, because I've collaborated on a ton of books. I've like done co-authoring and that kind of stuff. So I've only done my own solo cookbooks probably in the last five years or so. But previous to that, I've worked with a lot of other people. And I would say I had a pretty like head down, say yes to anything that comes my way, because I'm not sure if anything else will come my way. Just let me just 
take on as much work as I possibly can and do the best job I possibly can with hopes that I can just keep doing this thing that I love to do, which is, you know, put together collections of recipes and stories and images. And then basically the timing of my first solo book, which was called Small Victories, that came out in September 2016. And then there was the 2016 presidential election, which came, you know, shortly thereafter. (laughs) And for, I think, so many people, that was a time of reckoning and maybe just seeing things that we've known all along just get a brighter spotlight. And for some of us, seeing things we weren't quite aware of, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, be put into the light. And for me, that also coincided with the first time I had done this work I love to do, making cookbooks, but also putting out my own work and having it be, you know, enjoyed by some people and like people responded to it. So what that means is not just like, oh, people cooked recipes for my book. I also got to put myself out there and have my voice and my stories and all that stuff heard. And I got to experience what that feels like. And what a privilege that is. And so that was the moment when I feel like I went from keeping my head down and like looking in just right in front of me in the straight direction to just kind of getting a bit more peripheral vision and Mm -hmm. being like, oh, whoa, this is an amazing experience. And it's really messed up how few people get this experience and get the support to have this experience. Because it's not just like, oh, more people should have amazing experiences. Because yes, of course, that's true. (laughs) Um, But also, like, it makes a difference for everyone who goes into a bookstore or a library or sees what books are talked about in the media. Um, You know, it's just representation and visibility. And a huge thing I realized when my first book came out, which I just never anticipated, was the connection I would deepen, I guess, between myself and so many different people within the queer community, because I'm very openly and super proudly gay. And I just talk about my wife all the time because I talk about what I cook at home and I just cook for her all the time. (laughs) So I just talk about that. And that has, I feel like, made this, I don't know, kind of nice dent (laughs) in that conversation. And so it just became so clear to me, like, whoa, I see how important this is for me and other like gay women and members of the queer community. I'm not the first gay person to write a cookbook, obviously, but I just like had that firsthand experience. And so from that moment on, you know, coupled with the election and everything that that, you know, just I don't even know what to say. Coupled with that, Mm -hmm. um, I just was like, I care so much about, you know, getting the opportunity to put my work out there. And I want to keep doing that. But I also want to do that simultaneously as making this possible for as many people as I can. So I go about that in a number of ways, whether it's from, you know, talking about other things in my recipes um, to, uh, you know, doing other projects and a lot behind the scenes kind of stuff. As a cookbook author, how does that how are you mindful of people's issues with their bodies and with mm. food? And how did that? Okay. Yeah. yeah. What What have you seen there? Yeah. So um, I would say around this like 2016, 2017 moment, I think I was more like, which I continue to do, kind of incorporating more stuff about, um, I don't know, just looking through a lens that understands racism more than I did before. And I would say within the past couple of years, um, and what I really, I think, focus on in my new cookbook and Simply Julia is just incorporating discussion about exactly what you're saying, like bodies and diet culture and Mm -hmm. doing what I can to make a dent in that, I guess. And for me, that comes through in the fact that I wrote a healthy cookbook that is not about weight loss, which I just haven't really seen before. Um, a healthy cookbook that is not scared of any ingredient and a healthy cookbook that is just not judgmental. So that feels good to put out there. Like, I'm, I'm glad it's on my shelf. <laughs> you know, like, I feel good about that. And for me, it coincided with just those shifts in my own personal life. And I mean, I was, as so many people are, just completely raised in diet culture. Mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned my parents worked in the magazine business and they worked in advertising. So like, you know, my parents were making the images I was comparing myself against in, mm-hmm. in a certain way. And I just basically for so long thought 
that healthy was just a really nice word to use in place of the word skinny. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, when I thought about, oh, I just want to be healthy, it was like, no, I just want to be thin. And the more I've come to understand how just inaccurate that is, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like they're not the same thing. Healthy and skinny are just not the same thing. And that understanding has just honestly changed my life. It's changed my relationship to myself and my body, which is you know, a big part of our day-to-day life is like just how we feel about ourselves. So that is something I think I've incorporated into my cooking and recipes, like just being really honest about, yeah, what I'm using and why I'm using it. And like, I just basically feel like life is like too short for like low fat sour cream. <laughs> like, <laughs> like just use the real thing, you know, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, and as I have continued to again, to like use the same analogy, just like open my eyes a little wider about this just for myself. You know, I've come to see how many people have been doing this work for so long. I've come to learn a lot from them. And I'm also seeing a lot of people open their eyes at the same time. And like, I by no means think I'm alone in this and I'm grateful I'm not alone in this. And I feel like, I don't know, writing simply Julia, like putting my name on it, putting my face on it. Like I'm on the cover of the book and I'm not like, I'm not on TV. I'm not like, (laughs) I don't know, like making that decision. It feels important to me because it's an opportunity, I think, to show that a book like this can be hopefully well-received and welcomed and hopefully purchased by people, which I'm not saying for my own bank account or validation. I'm saying that because that means other people get to make more books like this and other people get to see themselves represented in books that say the word healthy and don't necessarily correspond with someone in a, um, you know, rail thin body or someone Mm -hmm. who is cisgendered or someone who's straight or, you know, Mm -hmm. and on and on. What is your definition of healthy with the cookbook? I think it's a word we should all define for ourselves. Like, I do not think it's like a one size fits all thing. Mm -hmm. And I love hearing how other people define it. But to answer your actual question, like, how do I define it? To me, I define healthy as freedom. And that might sound a little bit vague. Like what I mean exactly by that is feeling free of things like guilt and restriction and limitation, feeling free in my body, like being grateful for everything it can do and being totally okay with whatever it can't do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> feeling just non-judgmental, like being judgy feels like the opposite of free to me. Being judged feels the opposite of free. So for me, it just all comes back to this feeling of freedom. And when I feel healthy, I feel I feel free and I feel connected. You know, I feel connected to the people who grew the vegetables I'm eating. I feel connected to my wife who I'm sitting down next to and eating. I feel connected to my neighbor who I'm dropping something off for. Like this deep sense of connection and community along with that feeling of freedom feels really important to me. And my definition has nothing to do with any numbers, like especially anything like calories or Mm. I don't know, fat grams or anything. Like it's not something that can be measured or quantified. It's, it's a, it's a feeling. And, you know, this is a book of healthy comfort foods. And I really love the combination of the words healthy and comfort. To me, when I feel like my healthiest, I just feel comfortable. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not stressed. I'm not worried. I'm not, you know, I'm just like present and, and yeah, free. So yeah, it's a feeling for me. And if you're someone who maybe has grown up, I don't know, in America and therefore have, <laughs> have associations that certain foods are morally good and certain foods mm-hmm. are morally bad, like how do you start to break that down? I guess, yeah, I can tell you how I've started to break that down, which yeah. is just, you know, like I really get, I don't get angry very easily, Um, (laughs) but I get angry when I hear like the term like clean eating Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, because I think that taps into what you're talking about, like this moral question, because I feel like if any food is clean, does that mean other foods are inherently dirty? Like, what does that Mm -hmm. mean? And I feel like it's all capitalism and white supremacy. (laughs) Like it's all these things showing themselves in different forms. So when we put food on a moral scale, when there's like a hierarchy of what's worth more, what's, you know, what's quote unquote better, um, you know, what we 
what we charge for food and what that indicates. I think the minute we start doing that, it's just, yeah, it puts us in this hierarchy where something goes on top of something else to make the other thing feel less than. And that just sucks to me. Like, I don't think food should be judged morally. That said, I mean, I totally think it's really important and valuable to take things like the environment <laughs> into consideration and, you know, the way farmers are treated, the way animals are treated. And yeah, I guess those things totally have like moral values, but I just, I get a little nervous when, with the idea of one food being better than another. Like I just, I think we can get into a lot of trouble and sort of slippery slopes there. Well, it's also like the quality of what's available, right? So like the people who can go to Whole Foods and get ingredients are are vastly different than if you live in a food desert. In your field, do you see a lot of sort of ignorance of the reality of people's day to day? I mean, I think so. But I also think that ignorance is a little bit... Um, on purpose, not the, not anyone being ignorant or not being ignorant on purpose. I think like the systems at play, like put us into that position often where we don't make the connections between things like, I don't know, like I live in New York state. I live in the Hudson Valley, like bananas do not grow locally where I live, right. <laughs> but they're so widely available. Like I usually have bananas on my counter as many people do. And the disconnect I feel between like where those were grown and the fact that I can consume them whenever I want, like there's an ignorance to that, right? Like a disconnection. So, but I also think that's kind of like, I'm in some ways made to feel that way. Like that's been engineered to like make, you know, the difference between the climate where bananas are grown and like the climate of my, you know, kitchen counter, like that difference. But I don't know. I feel like the the term food desert is one that I think is really, really interesting because I learned another term from this amazing, amazing woman, Karen Washington, who is a farmer. I don't know if she describes herself as a community organizer, but I think of herself as one. She's been in the Bronx for decades and she's done a ton of work with like urban farming. Mm -hmm. um, and she also runs a farm called Rise and Root in Chester, New York. And it's amazing. And we buy, my wife and I buy all of our seedlings there in the <laughs> spring to plant our garden. I just like love Karen Washington and I'm grateful for her. And she's taught me and many others a lot. And she... I learned from her the term food apartheid and to use that as opposed to food desert. Mm. And because it, when you say food apartheid, like hearing the sound you just made, like, mm, like it just kind of opens your mind a little bit more that a desert is something that's like naturally occurring. And there's actually like lots of things that grow and thrive in the desert. And there's lots of like medicine that can be found in the desert. And so when we say food desert, especially about like urban cities and, you know, um, the availability of, of fresh food in, in certain places, we're making it sound like this nice thing and this thing in some ways that's sort of naturally occurring. And it's not like there's systems that have like, you know, segregated what's available. And so I think it's important to sort of name it for what it is. So I think in that sense, that kind of speaks to the sort of, I don't know, like ignorance thing, mm -hmm. like, but also we're like fed this term and like we use it, you know, like, oh, it's a food desert. And it's like, you know, like, I know that's not necessarily a good thing, but like, it doesn't sound that bad, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. So I don't know the answer here. I just like, these are things I just think about a lot and mm -hmm. I'm always just trying to learn from. And I am not like an expert about any of this. I'm just, I don't know, very, very willing to be just honest about what I know and what I don't know. Yeah. And, I mean, know, there's a yeah. huge gap between someone writing and with an acknowledgement of that. And like, I, I think the cookbooks that I've seen, and maybe I'm just like browsing Barnes and Noble or whatever, but like the cookbooks that are like, like you said, a thin person on the cover saying like, mm -hmm. cleanse yourself. And like, you know, you, you have to eat this certain way. Or, you know, I think like in terms of like writing the copy in the book of, do you find that people, it helps to, to write about your personal life? You mentioned like writing, mm -hmm. like about Grace and um, mm -hmm. I know she has diabetes and mm -hmm. like, I think, do you think like the personal stories, part of the recipes, like inform the recipe? I mean, for me, a thousand percent. Yeah. And 
I think, you know, you could ask 10 different cookbook authors and you might get 10 different answers. And, you know, again, I can only speak for myself, but, you know, I mentioned earlier, I've done a lot of like collaborative work and stuff. So the advice I give to anyone who like asks me about the cookbook process, which I'm always like happy to talk to anyone about. And the advice I try to follow myself is to only write the book that only you can mm-hmm. write. Mm-hmm. And for me, my answer to that is like, I can only write a cookbook of recipes that come from my home kitchen. That's the only thing I have any expertise about. (laughs) That's the only thing I can offer that no one else can't. Like, I mean, maybe my wife could, but I don't know that she wants to write a cookbook. (laughs) I mean, if she wants to, like, I mean, I would be happy to wash her dishes. That would be great. Um, (laughs) But yeah, we're the only two that could write the cookbook from this kitchen. Mm -hmm. And so when I share personal stories, that's the only way I can write my book and I'm happy to do that. And I like doing that. And if I wasn't happy to do that or didn't like it, like I should be doing something else. Does that inform (laughs) how you choose the recipes? Like how do you choose where, how do you choose what recipes go in a book? Yeah. For me, I, all my recipes start with a story. Like they have to have a good story because otherwise why be there? Mm -hmm. You know, like it has to connect to something. Um, so I start all my books by, um, writing the entire table of contents. Like I write down the names of all the recipes I want to include because I want to see how it all fits together. To me, a cookbook is kind of like a big puzzle, there's a woman, Paula Forbes, who has a uh, a cookbook-specific newsletter, like on Substack. Um, she's awesome. And I was talking to her recently, and she was like, a cookbook is just a spreadsheet until you, like, print it. And I was like, that's so <laughs> accurate. Um, so I like to see how all the parts fit together. Again, other people approach it differently. But for me, it is... I'm not a musician. I know nothing about music. I, like, love it. I just don't know anything about it. But I think it's maybe a little bit like figuring out which songs you're going to put on the album and which order you're going to put them in. Um, And I approach it that way. And then I sort of, you know, approach, go and write each recipe. And I start every recipe of my own. I start it on the page. I write it before I usually cook it. Maybe it's something I've cooked before, but I haven't written it down. So I start by writing it. And then I literally just, I'm looking at my printer right now. (laughs) I'm like, I feel like the only person in her 30s who like still uses a printer all the time I use a printer yeah, all the time. I do oh too. good I'm so happy to hear that oh good good like I feel like I've talked to so many people and they're like you have a printer and I'm like I couldn't yeah, do my work okay, without one but then those people text you and they're like can I use your printer so totally who's oh right my gosh, totally I'm like do you want to pay for the yeah. ink <laughs> um anyway I digress but I print things out I try to print things like on both sides of the page I mm. use recycled paper I feel obviously a little bit of guilt about my printer usage but then I bring this piece of paper to my kitchen with a red pen and I test the recipe until I think it works and on this book actually my wife Grace tested all the recipes for me which was an amazing experience and actually made the book so much better because testing your own recipes is a little bit like editing your own writing where I'm like well I know what I mean (laughs) and she all the time was like I have no idea what you're talking about here so I had to make it super clear Mm-hmm. And then I then I send them out to friends and family with like a list of questions because it's important for me as a cookbook author to know how my recipes are experienced when I am not there and it's like mm-hmm. not my kitchen. So that's kind of my my process. But yeah, totally starts with a story, starts on the page for me. Can, can we get back to like a little bit about like the mental health of it all? Just because mm-hmm. like that Please. part yeah. fascinates me so much. Yeah. And, and, and can we have people like talked to you about like how your writing has maybe influenced how they feel about food and how it's maybe influenced their relationship with food in any way? Yeah. How does it tie into mental health? I wrote a book about healthy cooking and eating. And for me, mental health is absolutely part of that definition and part of that conversation. So that's why there's essays in the book that are about like cooking and anxiety and about like body image. And I mean, I thank my therapist and the acknowledgements and (laughs) I actually have like another therapist now. Like I, I don't know, I talk about mental health on my podcast a lot. Like I talk to other people about what resources they rely on. And I think doing whatever I can to sort of, I think, not just like destigmatize the conversation around mental health, but also just like include it right alongside recipes feels Mm -hmm. vitally important to me because 
I think when we just isolate cooking and recipes just as like a separate thing from all this other stuff, like we're not doing the whole story justice. So in terms of what I've heard from people, yeah, I've heard a lot of like really (laughs) great things, just including what it means to have this stuff acknowledged and just said out loud. You know, I know what it's meant for me to hear other people talk about things that you know, I'm having a challenging time with and just to realize like I'm not alone in it. Mm -hmm. Like, of course, I care about the food and the recipes. I just told you a bit about the process. Like it's something I put so much thought into. And, you know, I love hearing from someone like, oh, I was nervous to, you know, make my girlfriend dinner for the first time, but like (laughs) it went really well. Like, or like, I don't know what to feed my kids, but like your recipe, like is the only thing they'll eat, like something like that. That's like amazing. I love that. But the thing that really like brings me to tears is when someone is like, oh, I feel I don't feel alone. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. like you said the thing that like has been on my mind and I just haven't said or shared or something like that is that's more important to me than anything. Like if I sold one book, but someone had that reaction, like I just feel like, wow, that was so worth it. <laughs> like that's success. Like that is amazing. What is the thing with anxiety? What is that essay? What'd you write about? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's a few things. I think um, just as anxiety like manifests in so many different ways. So for me, I basically am an extremely anxious person, like medicated for it and therapy for it. And the place in my life, in my daily life, where I feel the least anxious is in the kitchen. It's where I feel present. I feel confident. And I don't feel worried. And for me, anxiety is very much about being worried about something that happened or being concerned or worried about something that's going to happen. So when I'm present, it's very hard for me to be present and anxious at the same time, unless like something is on fire (laughs) or something. Um, And with that in mind, that's why I feel like it's, I really just try to help people not feel stressed out in the kitchen because I just, I know what I feel is the opposite of what most people feel. A lot of people feel so much anxiety in the kitchen. So another one of my goals is just to like take that off the list because there's enough, in my opinion, for all of us to be extremely worried about and like making dinner, like does not need to be one of them. I mean, two other things I talk about in that essay are One, the way that cooking has helped me essentially with like social anxiety, Mm. Um, like using food as a way to just connect with people, meet new people. Like I tell this sort of silly story, but I think maybe helpful. I don't know about like when I was in college, like I, you know, was going to parties for the first time in my life because when I was in high school, I didn't really do that. And I was like, wait, you're supposed to hang out with people like outside of class. Like, what does that mean? And then I was like, what do I do? But then I would go to like the deli on the corner and get a big bag of potato chips and bring it because then I could go up to anyone because I was like, hey, do you want a chip? And it was like a gimmick, right? Like a shtick. But it made me feel so comfortable. And it was like the idea of just going up to someone I don't know and saying hi, like still to this day, I'm like, that's weird. Like <laughs> podcast, great, because we've like set up this time to talk like mm-hmm. It feels really clear to me, but like, I don't know if we were all just like in a coffee shop and like, hey, you look cool. <laughs> like, I don't, like, I don't, how do you do? I don't know. I don't know. So food has been this way to connect for me. And I think that was important to talk about in terms of like social anxiety, kind of connection anxiety. And then the other thing I bring up is how food has been this amazing way for me to disengage when that type of connection has felt overwhelming, when I feel worried maybe about what someone's thinking about me or what I'm thinking about the situation. Like when I go into that non-present worried place, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. food has been a way for me to just at least momentarily like step outside of that. Like I think the easiest example is like, let's say we're having family over for like the holidays. Obviously that hasn't happened recently, Mm -hmm. but like it has happened and and will happen again. And, you know, there's times where in my house, my, my parents are here, my brother is here and his family, my in-laws are here, like all these people I love so much, but it's like a little overwhelming to have them all here. And so I will often be like, I'm going to go get dessert ready, (laughs) but like secret, like dessert is already ready. Like I bought the pie. (laughs) Like Dessert does not need my help, but like I need to just step aside for a second. Um, And food has just been like the easiest way to do that. So I basically just, when it comes to anxiety, 
in general, I am just really interested in what are the tangible ways to just get through this moment and process Mm -hmm. it and understand it and move forward. And food has been like the answer for me in so many parts of that question. And but what if if food is is a source of anxiety Mm, for you? Totally. Well, it has been. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have had this lifelong love of cooking, a deep curiosity about it, like a passion for it. It's felt very positive. And at the same time, I have had an extremely fraught relationship with eating. Mm -hmm. Food has given me so much anxiety when it comes to the consumption of it, not the preparation. And I think we kind of talk about cooking and eating in this way that they're obviously they're really connected, (laughs) like super connected, but they are different things. And Mm -hmm. so I, I think even just seeing that clearly for myself has been really helpful because I've been confused about that because I'm like, I love food, but I'm scared of it. Mm -hmm. But like, wait, what am I like? I don't know. So like just identifying like, oh, these are two separate things that overlap often, but they're different. That just in and of itself has been helpful. I mean, another thing that has been extremely helpful for me, which I talk about in the book, was I had this like light bulb moment one day when I was like, I have only ever felt two things in my life. I have felt happy or I have felt fat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that was like, I just feel like it made everything made make sense for me. And I came to understand that and have that thought because I had been starting to really work through a lot of this diet culture stuff. And I had started that work because I just basically was pretty sick of feeling unhappy with my body, scared of the food I was eating that I so love preparing, like really tired of carrying around guilt when it came to food, because I'm so fortunate. Like I get to eat whenever I want. I get to eat whatever I want, whether I was permitting myself to or not. Like I come from so much privilege in this department and I was just feeling miserable. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to figure that out and hopefully just move through it. So that involved just a lot of therapy, a lot of conversations with my incredibly supportive wife. Like it involved following new people on social media, like changing who I look at. It involved reading all different books and listening to different podcasts, which I'm like happy to share some of those. I've like put them on like my Instagram feed and stuff. Like, so that's kind of how I got to this place where the light bulb went off. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've only felt these two things. And when I realized that it was really eye-opening for me. And it was also really sad for me because one, I had named fat as a feeling, which it just isn't. Yeah. <laughs> like um, I had also made it impossible to feel happy and fat at the same time, which that is totally possible, mm-hmm. even though fat's not a feeling. That's diet I culture. Also, yeah, <sighs> exactly. Exactly. And I had like basically said that fat was a word that meant anything other than happy, which, yeah, exactly like you just said, is totally diet culture. And I had also limited myself to like two feelings and I was keeping myself from feeling all these things other than happy. And all those other things, whether it's like anger or sadness or confusion or frustration or whatever, like those are part of being human, (laughs) being alive. And I was just not permitting myself to go there. So I was keeping myself from myself. And again, because I love like tangible things that are helpful. Like one thing I did, which is like really silly, but I still have it. It's on my wall. I'm not going to like unplug everything and show you, but I could send you a picture afterwards. I went on the internet and I bought from like a school supply place. I'm sure you could get it anywhere, but I bought a poster that is like often in children's classrooms that has like all the different feelings and like a picture of a kid with each feeling, like showing like sad face, happy face, you know, and on and on. So whenever I just had the moment of like, oh, I feel fat, I would be like, okay, let's not like fight this. Let's figure this out. And I would, I trained myself to go in front of the poster and just look and be like, what are you actually feeling right now? Like, have you, have you put on weight? If so, okay, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, that's fine. Like, do we need to buy new pants? Fine, no big deal. But it's pretty much never that. It's usually something else. And I've just used fat as this thing in between me and my feelings. Mm -hmm. So the poster has been really helpful. I mean, it's almost like you're realizing it's like a catch-all or a scapegoat of a feeling. Yeah, um, When it's not even a feeling. Yeah. And like sharing this and writing about it has been a 
gift I've given myself because as I was talking about earlier, that thing of like, maybe if I can do something to make someone feel less alone, that feels really important to me. And I feel like in sharing this, I've, I've allowed myself to feel less alone. Mm -hmm. Like I have heard from so many people. I talk to so many people, whether it's people who are like cooking for my book now, but also like my closest friends, like our conversations have changed. Like my conversation with my mother is so different and it's, and it, all these things are evolving. And I just basically just feel a lot less alone. And I'm realizing how lonely I felt <laughs> like mm -hmm. in these feelings. And it just, I don't know, it feels better today. So, yeah. How has the conversation with your mother changed? And like, what is it like for her to sort of recognize maybe what role she's played yeah. in, in shaping those thoughts that you had? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I guess that's probably like a question she should answer, but she's not here. So <laughs> I will um, speak on her behalf. Um, I think it's been really hard. Um, mm -hmm. But I really appreciate that my mom is not afraid to have these hard conversations. I'm very grateful for that. But it's been hard for us at times. It's been sad. Like, um, but also I just she's, I don't know, she's really willing to take accountability for things, which I just admire in anyone, but especially my mom, I'm grateful for that. And yeah, I know uh, something we repeat to each other all the time is like, hey, we can't go backwards. We can't go backwards. Like we say that a lot. And it's just sort of acknowledging like, yeah, I think she probably wishes for herself for a lot of things in her life, wishes certain things had been different, just as I do. And but they're not. <laughs> but the fact that we can talk about it and like name it and not hang up the phone and like, you know, like just be honest. I don't know. I really I'm very, very grateful for that. I love that. Mm -hmm. and, and another thing I'm grateful for is my game show. Has <laughs> <examples>. <laughs> Excellent segue. the hypotheticals hypotheticals is a game show where you and gabby are my contestants i'm gonna give you a series of hypothetical situations uh you can ask as many clarifying questions as you want and then tell me what you would do um and then i just arbitrarily decide oh if i like God, your answer okay here we go <laughs> there are no rules baby <laughs> um, okay our first game is america's favorite game show would you stay with this cheater okay <laughs> You find out that your partner of six years has been telling their coworkers that they are married to a professional dancer since they got their new job two years ago. You are not married, nor are you a professional dancer. When you confront them about this, they explain that the lie increases their street cred and makes it so they, that you don't have to attend any boring work events. Would you stay with this cheater? They have photoshopped photos of themselves with the dancer on their desk. Who are they using as the as the Photoshop dancer? <laughs> um, just some random person they found on the interwebs. <laughs> Is it a picture of me I, dancing? <laughs> Why do they need to use a different person? Well, because it's yeah, it's like after a show, you know, like it's a person in a leotard. Got it. It's a lie. <laughs> it's it's an elaborate lie. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate the built-in excuse to not have to go to any office parties. Uh -huh. Like, I'm okay with that part. I don't know if I'm okay with the elaborate lie. Why didn't they tell me they were doing this? They thought you um, would be upset well, that they had made up a fictional spouse. Well, okay. And why did they need to be married? Because that's just the office culture. Everybody's married. And why does it increase their street cred to be married to a dancer? Because on one of, thank you so much for asking, on one of their first nights uh, when they like went out to drinks with colleagues, one of their coworkers had been like, oh, I just saw this wonderful ballet performance and everyone there was like, oh, we love the ballet so much. And then they were like, yeah, we hope you like the ballet. We're a big ballet office. And then they were, and so your partner was like, actually, I'm married to a ballet dancer. <laughs> well, I, I think those details this is probably not going to go well for this person because all their <laughs> colleagues know more about this. I was also going right? to say that, like, what sort of insecure person <laughs> wants to fit in at the office so badly? It is a very well-paying job. I would just, I wouldn't leave, but I would just be like, 
what what is wrong with you i i think i'm i'm the same as gabby but it would depend on like is this my out from a relationship i don't want to be in maybe i would take the out that's a very good out that's a very good out like i'm going to go join this dance troupe see you later (laughs) you are a dancer but it's hip-hop dance (laughs) they're not interested in that well then that's it's ballet or bus for this person yeah that's all yeah goodbye (laughs) against ballet It does make sense though, because every year for their your birthday, they have been getting you tutus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? <laughs> you find out that your oldest child, age 12, has been lying to your younger child, age eight, about things just to mess with them. For example, they told your younger child that if they don't pee with the lights on, a snake will come out of the toilet and bite their butt. In order to teach them a lesson, you tell your younger child to pretend that they forgot to leave the lights on when they pee and that a snake bit their butt. Your younger child gives an award-winning performance and cries and cries, saying they need to be taken to the hospital because a snake bit their butt, until your older child, seeing how afraid their younger sibling is, finally admits that they made it up. Are you a terrible parent? (laughs) (laughs) I admire the stamina for this experience. Get the younger child into acting classes right now. They are an Oscar winner. Yeah. The answer can also be that you're an incredible yeah. parent. Yeah, I kind of think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. I'm just trying to think about how I, I lied to my younger sister all the time. I would say places were haunted that weren't haunted. Like I would be like, really? oh, yeah. I we I was like, yeah, did you know that there's a ghost that lives here and stuff? And she like at our synagogue and things like that. And she'd be like so scared of the ghost. But like there wasn't a ghost. I don't know why I said that. Um, well, <laughs> our producer, Melissa, read, reads the hypotheticals ahead of time and said, emailed me like I did this to my sister. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's kind of a thing. Um but I think I now that I think about it, I should have learned my lesson. I feel like my parents should have like done a fake ghost and mm-hmm. like made me learn my lesson. Mm-hmm. So I think you're an incredible parent. Yeah. I'm going to just say as the younger sibling in my family, I have an older brother and I was just, I don't know. I feel like this has been a triggering <laughs> question. <laughs> but the fact that like we're the younger sibling in this hypothetical lands, I think that this is a good parent. <laughs> No, I'm the older sibling, so I'm evil. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the younger sibling, but the only thing my sister ever lied to me about was that we go to this resort in Mexico. And one time she told me that that at night this restaurant turned into a brothel. Why did she do that? (laughs) I don't know, but I 100% believed her because she doesn't do stuff like that. That is very funny. But it really, it was really a good time. At a certain point, Cheyenne should have been like, why is everywhere we go haunted? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so consensus, incredible parents. Yep. (laughs) And very good acting from the younger siblings. Yes, yes. Okay, our final game. Is this a date? You have a next door neighbor who you were friendly with, but never hung out with. One day they knock on your door and ask if you would like to join them as they walk a mastiff. They are dog sitting, (laughs) which weighs 180 pounds. You agree. And they suggest that you both hold on to the leash since the dog is very strong and likes to pull. (laughs) Is this a date? Obviously, your hands will touch while holding the leash. (laughs) I think this is. A dream date. Wow. <laughs> wow. What's the Mastiff's name? Oh, good question. Uh, Rufy. That's not great. <laughs> I know. I wow, I love big dogs, even though I have a tiny dog. But I is what is our what's the neighbor's deal? What's their sitch? They are single and they have a sign that actually on their door says ready to mingle. <laughs> I went to look at I went to look at an apartment one time and the landlord had a sign that said karma is a bitch or something. And then they came out to greet me and they were also wearing a matching shirt that said karma is a bitch. And I was like, I'm scared to live here. Yeah, I was like, that is some admirable consistency. I was just like, I don't want to live with you. I'm scared. Or they sell karma is a bitch product. That could be. 
Um, I think it is a date because I just, as a queer woman, anything involving dogs is probably a date. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So I say, I say, yes, it's a date. Yeah, I'm with you. And I go. <laughs> Turns out strictly platonic, just very strong dog. They, okay. <laughs> they were like, last time I walked and this dog, look, I was pulled into the street. Uh, yes. And you look like a fool when you try to kiss them. So this is just a neighborly just gesture. And now you've made things very awkward. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I guess they'll have to find someone else to walk Rufy <laughs> in this universe that we've created. <laughs> Before we let you go, we like to ask our, our guests to rate their experience being on this podcast. <laughs> uh, did you have a good time? Do you have any constructive criticism for us? I love that you do that. I what Do I have a scale or I just yes, give uh, you? We would like you to make up your scale. Yeah. So oh, it could be okay. at, like any number out of any number okay. blank. I'm going to give you five out of five pats of butter on my pancakes. Nice. That seems good. That's lovely. Um, And I really enjoyed this and I really enjoy the experience of getting to talk about food and cooking and mental health and hypothetical dates with mastiffs. I thought the date was with the dog, not the neighbor, but whatever. That's okay. We can take that. We can take that critique. I should have been more clear. (laughs) But um, no, this was unlike any other conversation I've had. I don't think I've been asked, especially those final questions. So it's really nice to um, put my thinking cap on. And I just really love hypothetical situations because they don't actually make me that anxious because they are not real. So thank you for that. Oh, yay! (laughs) And where can people find out all about all the work you're doing and order all of your amazing books? Um, Well, you can call my mom. Um, but in lieu of giving out her phone number, um, I am at juliatrition.com on the internet. All the information about my work, my podcast, all that kind of stuff is there. And I'm on Instagram at Tertian, just my last name. Awesome. Thank you so much to Julia Tertian for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production. Hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Monts. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. And at JBU Podcast on Instagram, at Allison Raskin on Instagram, at Gabby Road on Instagram, and at Emotional Support Lady for Allison's Mental Health Instagram. Bye! Forever! Forever.